1: This episode is brought to you by the Device and Virtue podcast. I'm Chris. And I'm Adam. On Device and Virtue, Chris and I argue about the wrongs and rights Christians face with technology in everyday life, from smartphones to evangelism chatbots. To that selfie stick Adam shouldn't have bought. It's nice. Subscribe at deviceandvirtue.com. This
2: is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts.
3: We should be watchful so as to let our lips and lives express the holy gospel we profess.
4: Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they delivered. Today's sermon was preached by Emmanuel K. K. Love, also known as EK Love, not to be confused with uh, another speaker we've had on this show, Christopher Love. So there's two loves we've, we've covered. There's, there's Christopher Love, and now we're doing EK Love. Today's episode is titled Mission of the Gospel Church, and it was preached in Georgia sometime before 1880. We're not exactly sure when. Before we get into the history of today's episode, I just want to give a big shout out to our new Patreons this week, Armory Schwartz and Josh Childs. Thank you so much for helping enable this show this sermon is preached at the dedication of a church
2: so this is at the beginning of a church that is being pretty much you know hey this is going to be a church Sunday, here's the mission statement basically and at the time ek love was this mega pastor in savannah and so him dedicating this church was a pretty big deal and he's telling people not what only what not only the dream of this local church is going to be but also what the church is really supposed to be in its grandest you know loftiest sense um Joel and I, I think, and if you're a Christian, you probably have had this discussion where you talk about what is the, what is the church, and what is the church uh, supposed to do? Um, is it just a gathering on Sundays? Do Should they meet in houses? Is it just a place to hear sermons and be edified on the week, or are you supposed to go out and serve and be outreach, and how do all these things and pieces fit together? Um, and you think to the church is all of these things, and also it's not quite these things, and it never feels—it's like, a tough thing to get to get nailed down, I think, to just have this uh, good answer that you can get off the cuff of what it is and what it's supposed to do. So it's really great to hear this pastor. Uh, again, he's he's already experienced and in, in, in far in his walk, but he's giving the mission statement of this early just growing and beginning church. And so you can get the expertise of a pastor uh, a little bit later in the ministry explaining what that's supposed to be.
4: Troy E.K. Love was born in the year 1850, and he died in 1900. He was born as a slave in Alabama and was educated privately. He worked at a farm until 1870, but eventually felt the calling into ministry. And so after a few years of school, he eventually becomes ordained in a Baptist church in 1875, and then again as a missionary in the year 1877. Now, if it seems like we're going through his life a little bit fast, it's because we're a little bit short on details, especially early on on his life. There's not a lot known about his earlier days. He would mention some details in some of his preachings about his past, about his growing up. But because of his status as a slave, that just information just was, was never documented. And so we kind of have to, to look at what he wrote and what he talked about uh, that gives us kind of a, an idea about his past.
2: Now, eventually he gets named to the first African Baptist Church in Savannah, and this church may not seem like a big deal today but this is a huge big very important church in that time period in the 1800s Um, it is one of the most prominent churches in the world in fact Uh, this church had its founding back in 1773 so it was older than the united states and it was founded in savannah georgia Uh, many prominent people have come through came through this church and it still stands to this day with actually some of the pieces that ek love installed like the baptismal pool is the same one and this church had a huge membership, around five thousand members. And you got to remember, this is the eighteen hundreds. That that same time period where the first uh, African Baptist church in Savannah has five thousand members. Charles Spurgeon is at a church preaching to 5,000 people, so we're comparing. I mean, this church is, in comparison, is, is around similar sizes to one of the biggest churches of that entire century, so this church was a very big deal, and the people and the members that came out of it and the things they did historically, they were very influential and important people.
4: As an African-American preaching in in the South, he was devoted and very effective at fighting against racism, fighting against Jim Crow laws, lynching, and and a lot of other tragedies that occurred during that era. He was responsible for setting up a lot of schools and colleges and was heavily involved in politics. And if we're being honest, there's a lot of aspects to the political side of his life that are just a little bit too far out out of our expertise for us to comment on them, But there is this one incident that we want to talk about that he became famous for, and it was called the Baxley Affair. And we'll talk about the Baxley Affair after this break.
1: Do you think about how your iPhone affects your daily life as a Christian? I'm Adam. And I'm Chris. And this episode is brought to you by the Device and Virtue podcast, where we argue about the wrongs and rights of technology and faith in everyday life, from DNA tests to TikTok videos. Give us a listen, and this fall, check out our new online seminary course. It's called Theology of Technology, Church and Culture in the Age of Zoom. Find out more at deviceandvirtue.com. In 1889, he was
2: traveling to the Black Foreign Mission Convention in Indianapolis, and there was a group of them that they were going, and they had to go there by train. Uh, this set of trains only had two different types of rail cars. Um, there was first class, and there was uh, smoking. And in the smoking cars, they're not the places you really want it to be. There's drinking, um, it's a pretty inappropriate. Things are not always going on very well. It's, it's highly immoral. So as a group of ministers and people who care about, you know, taking God's word to foreign mission, they didn't want to be In that car scene with that kind of crowd. Um, When they purchased their tickets, they were told that there would be a separate car for them to be able to ride along in the first class cars that were for uh, people who were, you know, not white. Uh, But when they got there, they said, sorry, we only have first class cars that are for whites and you're going to have to sit in these smoking cars. Even though, again, they had paid for the first class tickets and were told that it would be taken care of. The group decided that, no, we're going to sit in the first class cars that we had paid for.
4: People were very upset at this, and they began sending telegrams and complaining. And before long, people heard about this, and there was an actual mob forming at one of the next upcoming train stations. And so when the train stopped in Baxley, one of those next train stations, a mob of people entered the train and demanded that the ministers leave that first class car and when they didn't they were beaten severely There, I mean some accounts say that if cops weren't there to pull them off them they, they would have been beaten to death after this incident there was only five of the ministers that felt confident enough to keep going onto Indianapolis in on this train
2: EK Love was one of those five that kept going and I you know I had to stop and think to myself this is in 1889 this is only 130 years ago it's just incredible that that something with that people going to help foreign missions would go it's just it's very hard to imagine all of that and the way it went down and this wasn't the only time racism was used against him Uh, he had trouble getting his books and his sermons and his writings published um, and they actually had to start some of their own uh, organizations just to get their words out because different organizations especially the baptist organization they were with at the time didn't want to have to publish their writings Uh, but one more thing about ek love is beside he, he's deeply involved with politics he's very much into uh starting schools he spent time as a pastor of one of the largest churches in the world at the time but he was also this prolific just incredible writer he edited three different baptist journals and two different secular newspapers um that alone just blew me he's writing for five different papers while starting schools while he's doing all these different things he would end up as a republican national convention delegate um and he would do all this and then die in 1900 before he was 50. and his first 20 years are spent on a farm he does all the all of this and his last 29 it's it's really incredible he I, I just can't imagine this guy ever sat down. He must have always been doing something to have all of this stuff happen in such of a short period of time. Um, and again, he didn't even get started until he was in his 20s. Uh, in this sermon, he tells us what is the goal of a church and, and what it is and how are we and what are we supposed to be doing. And at the very beginning, the birth of this church, this very influential and important person who's, who has a, lot, a pretty large legacy is gonna tell us what a church should be. And I think he may be just the perfect person to shed light on that subject.
3: Mission of the Gospel Church by Emmanuel K. Love Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your work perfect before God. Revelation chapter 3, verse 2 The Gospel Church was established by the Lord Jesus Christ as an instrumentality through which the glad tidings of saving grace might be proclaimed to Adam's lost and ruined posterity. Through this medium alone, God has promised to work. The church is God's divinely appointed agency through which the world might learn Messiah's name. It is through this medium, the gospel church, that God graciously purposes to draw the children of men to his holy son, Jesus Christ. This is the mission of her that came out of the wilderness dressed in her beautiful bloodstained garment, shining as bright as the sun, as clear as the moon, as beautiful as the stars, and as terrible as an army with banners. It is by her Christ-like example and influence that guilty sinners may be brought to him, the mighty to save. The mission of the church is a noble one. The gospel church should have a happy effect on the children of men. Since this is true of the gospel church, It follows that if she does not retain her integrity, dignity, gorgeous beauty, and heavenly purity, she will not accomplish the good for which she was established and will fall under the censure of her author. On the failure of the church to till the sphere for which she was established, the Savior is grieved. He most solemnly complains of her and threatens to visit her with severe judgment. The seven churches of Asia, save two, were the first recipients of this awful and grievous complaint. The church at Ephesus was rebuked because she held the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which God declared that he hated. This idolatry in the church was very grievous. Notwithstanding, she had done some good things. She was not perfect. She had again left her first love. God gives her a fatherly admonition to repent or he would remove her candlestick. The church at Smyrna was faithful in all things and received an admonition in the language of a father. Be you faithful unto death and I will give you a crown of life. The church at Pergamos, though she was praised for being firm in the faith and not denying his name, had yet something against her. She held the doctrine of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. The church at Thyatira was very charitable, and she did a great many things which were praiseworthy. Yet she was not perfect, for she had Jezebel, who claimed that she was a prophetess and was not, which was an abomination to God. The church at Sardis is solemnly complained of because she had a name to live up to but was dead. Churches should strive to live up to their names, They should do all the duties enjoined upon them. The church at Philadelphia has a pleasing record. Oh, it must please God for churches to strive earnestly to fill the sphere for which they were designed. Such churches cannot fail to exert a powerful influence in the world. In such churches, God delights to make his home. The work of the church is a holy one. The church at Laodicea has a heartrending record. She was neither cold nor hot, because she was neither, God declared that he would spew her out of his mouth. With these facts before us, how applicable are the words of our texts. We meet here this afternoon to dedicate this house of worship to our God. Dear brethren, the thoughts that claim our, our attention are as follows. First, the fatherly admonition in the text. Be watchful. This is not only a duty of the church, but of every Christian. We should strive to live circumspectly as would become followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. The gravity of this admonition will be more forcibly felt when we consider that it falls from the lips of him whose eyes never sleep and who knows Satan from the beginning and therefore best sees the necessity of giving such a command. We will see more clearly the importance of this admonition as we follow along the channel of thought. Number one, be watchful internally. The mind is a door to the soul. When the mind is corrupted, the soul will soon be. They are so intimately and separably connected that if one is defiled, the other will inevitably be corrupted. We should be watchful, therefore, as to what enters our minds, since the soul is more surely affected by it. We are called upon to be watchful as to what enters the mind, since Satan acts upon the mind by which he means to reach the soul. It is this precious and eternal substance around which should be placed every safeguard possible. The reasons are obvious when we contemplate for a moment what the soul is. It is a portion of God and man. It was for this reason that the Lord Jesus left heaven, veiled himself in human clay, suffered, bled and died It was for the soul I saw one hanging on a tree in agonies and blood. The soul was purchased at a great price. It required heaven's dearest gift. The love that the Lord Jesus manifested for his church is unspeakable and full of glory. It was for the soul that our dear Savior, we see you bathed in tears and weltering in your blood. There are small evils which, when accumulated, make a stronghold upon the soul and tend to pollute it. We cannot be too careful with what our minds are filled. Drops by drops make the ocean, and little grains of sand make the land. These little parcels of evil may, if not watch, come in unobserved. The soul may gradually fall from its first love and be made to cry, Where is the blessedness I knew from whence I first saw the Lord? Be watchful also of your affections. Nothing needs more watching than your affections, which should be continually set upon God. It is to this portion of man that the language of the poet is so admirably adapted. Hark, my soul! It is the Lord, tis the Savior, hear his word. Jesus speaks and speaks to you. Say, poor sinner, do you love me? How often do we find that our affections are set too much on the things that are perishable, things that are not pure and holy, and when once they get a stronghold upon us, what efforts are required to get rid of them? To this, brethren, I cannot too earnestly invite your attention. It is at this door that the Lord Jesus stands and knocks. We are commanded by the blessed Savior to watch and pray unless we enter into temptation. Our minds are too much disposed to wander from God. Grace too often decays and comfort dies, leaving our heart in pain. This is what David prayed for. Purge me from secret faults was the often-repeated prayer of this humble patriarch. God desires truth to the inward parts. Of this Paul speaks, When I want to do good, I don't do it. This is the warfare he speaks of, wars within. Satan is attempting to cut off our affections by his slander and fascinating charms. Watch and keep yourself pure is the admonition of the Bible. When Satan had filled the mind and affections with vanity, we began to feel like crying. Often I feel my sinful heart prone from my Jesus to depart. The affections are what God acts upon. When a man is converted, his affections are simply changed. This is what makes things appear so new to him. His affections are improved and he loves as he never did before. He feels renewed. Ask a child of God what is his greatest evidence that he is a Christian and he will tell you that because he now loves things which he once hated. Oh, the change of affections where one is made to cry. What wondrous love is this? Oh, my soul. For this angels in heaven rejoice because the poor sinner loves as he never loved before. This joyous love is unspeakable and full of glory. We hope the importance of watching the affections is clearly seen. Number two, watch your Christian duties. Many little duties may pass by unnoticed if we do not keep on the watch. There are many duties that devolve upon us which we must not fail to obey. The first of these that I will mention is self-denial. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This strikes me, my brethren, as being the first duty of a child of grace. He that will not forsake father and mother, wife and children, house and land, and even his own life, is not worthy of me. Man may at times find himself inclined to get proud and selfish, when such feelings crowd in upon his soul, he should pray God to make him humble. He should remember that God brings low the proud and haughty and exalts the humble and lowly. When we get puffed up and higher in mind than becomes disciples of Jesus, we should not forget that it is our first Christian duty to deny ourselves. We should watch those inclinations which tend to make us think more highly of ourselves than we ought. They are they which endure our Christian influences. Never, my brethren, has there been a church or people who promoted themselves that God did not bring low. Let a church forget that God is her helper and fall into condemnation and the snares of Satan and great is her fall. Let the church forget that the Most High reigns, and you will see one without power and influence. You will see one that is dead to every good work. Another of our duties is prayer. How delightful is this duty? Prayer makes the darkened clouds withdraw. Prayer climbs the ladder Jacob saw, gives exercise to faith and love, brings every blessing from above. Restraining prayer, we cease to fight. Prayer makes the Christian armor bright, and Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. It is this music of prayer that God loves to hear, and praying souls he will crown. Christians should love to pray. Prayer is a medium which brings man into alignment with his God. At a throne of grace, soul communes with soul. God, the creator, communes with man, his creature. Prayer is to the soul what water is to the system. The animal life is sustained by animal food. So is the spiritual life by prayer. Christians should pray for the conversion of sinners, for the advancement of God's Zion in the earth, and for the spread of the gospel. We should be watchful so as to let our lips and lives express the holy gospel we profess and our conversation prove our hearts to be sincere. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Let us fear to do wrong and dare to do right, for we have a work that no other can do. The text supposes that some things are undone and asserts that they are upon the verge of death. We are therefore solemnly commanded to strengthen the things which remain. It is remarkably true of churches that they too often fall from their first love. They are too apt to leave off the duties that they once loved to perform. Let us see what the church was to do, what she has done, and what she is doing, then we may clearly perceive what remains to be done. For starters, what the church was to do, the church was to exemplify in her character daily the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. Her power was to be felt for good in the world. From her, all that is good, peaceable, loving, virtuous, pure, and holy were to come which Christian graces are absolutely necessary for the accomplishment of the desired good. The church was to be the agency through which the missionary cause was to be advanced. It has always been God's plan to work through instrumentalities to reclaim the erring, to cheer the faint, and to raise the fallen. The church was to be a medium through which education might be promoted It was, I believe, intended that the church should see to it that the world should read the Bible, in which alone is God's revealed will. The church was to be the very fountain of temperance. She should preach temperance. The church was to live in unity. Each should feel his brother's care and with him bear a part. She was to work together. In unity there is strength. The church was to protest against sin in every shape and form and send the gospel to the perishing millions of the earth. The church in her early ages spread the gospel, notwithstanding she came through many horrible and bloody scenes. When we look back and see the rage of persecution against the early church and think of the countless number of Christians who suffered martyrdom for the truth they believed and preached, we can but rejoice at her triumph all the power of the papacy could not prevent her final spread. The finger of God was in the matter, making it graciously result in the salvation of many precious souls. The brethren, wherever scattered, proclaimed the good news, preaching salvation only through Jesus Christ. They established churches wherever they went. When we reflect on those awful persecutions, we wonder how it was possible for the church to exist through them. Then it is that by faith I fancy I see a hand rent and torn in which is a bloodstained banner under which the church marched. The banner has this inscription on it. Your saints in all this glorious war will conquer though they die. They see a triumph from afar and seize it with their eye. They are cheered to go forward under all circumstances. Go forward, if through the Red Sea. Advance, if to the lion's den. Push onward, if at risk of fiery furnace. Like Constantine, there will appear before you a bleeding cross with with the inscription, By this sign, conquer." Many churches, even in our day, have planted other churches in heathen lands. The church used to contribute to the necessities of the poor saints, and they used to delight themselves in spreading the gospel. The early Christians seemed to have delighted to tell the story of unseen things above, of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. Among the early churches, there was but one Lord, One faith, one baptism. Last, what the church is doing. Many churches in a great measure retain that missionary spirit which once characterized the church of Christ. Many are taking up collections for foreign and domestic missions. Many noble preachers have been and are now beneficiaries of some humble church of Christ. Many churches are nobly aiding institutions of learning. But many churches are spending hundreds of dollars uselessly in erecting houses of worship at enormous cost. It strikes me most forcibly when I pass through our cities and behold such costly churches and then go through the country and see log churches and sometimes no churches at all. It looks as though One hand in waste and another is starving. I sometimes think that this is not the spirit of Christ, neither is it the spirit intended for his children. If a percent of all the money spent in erecting those very costly buildings, basements, galleries, and the superfluous matters about them in the cities was appropriated for the purpose of building churches throughout the country, I believe it would fill up the country with comfortable houses of worship. This is something that many of our churches are doing, which they ought not do. Let us ask ourselves the solemn question. Are we as a church doing what God would have us do? Are we supporting the mission cause? Are we willfully refusing to do the part assigned us in the master's vineyard? Have we lived in detriment to the cause? Failed to promote education? If we could answer these questions as having fulfilled our duty, I fancy that God would be better pleased with our work. The cause of missions claims the prayers, sympathies, and support of every church of Christ on earth. We can but believe that it was the design of the author of the church that she should advance his Zion in all those things necessary to exemplify the life of Christ. Our text calls upon us to strengthen the things that remain or they will die entirely. The more we leave them off, the more we are disposed to neglect them. The less we do, the less we feel like doing. They will become so that you will think that they are not duties at all. Now notice the solemn and awful complaint laid at the feet of the church. You have done many things, spoke the Lord, but your work is not perfect. How careful then ought I to live with what religious fear who such a strict account must give for my behavior here. If the heavens themselves are not pure in the sight of God, how carefully should we approach him? With what fear and trembling? Consider that he cannot look upon sin with the least degree of allowance and then hear him declare that our work is imperfect. It is enough to melt the hardest heart. God cannot be pleased with imperfect worship. God cannot be pleased with the worship that he has not commanded. All that God intended for us to do by which we should render an acceptable and perfect worship to him has been shown to us in the Bible and through Christ his Son. When we deviate one iota from the path which he has marked out, he is not pleased and declares our work imperfect. How many churches have this complaint thrown at their feet? Let all ask, Lord, is it I? We should try to be like Jesus more and more in service and in song. Let us cry, Oh, for a closer walk with God. This we must do if we would have our works perfect before God. How else? Can we be at ease and treat the complaint with indifference? When we consider from whom this complaint comes, our hearts can but melt to tears. It falls from the lips of him who loves the church and gave himself up for the church. It comes from the lips of him who cannot lie. It issues from the lips of him who would not treat his church wrong or see it imposed upon. It emanates from him who delights to make the church his abode. When we consider these striking and stubborn facts, how can we refrain from crying, Return, O holy dove, return, sweet messenger of rest. I hate the sins that made you mourn and drove you from my breast. Let us ask that God may make us more faithful, confirm us in faith, and perfect us in love. We are told that the house of God should be a house of prayer for all people. When Solomon had finished the temple, he dedicated it to God. The church should have a house of worship. We have been speaking so far of the members who are the church. We will now speak very briefly of the church house. The Bible tells us not to neglect the assembling of ourselves together. We should, therefore, have a house in which to do this. It is our duty to build a house for God. If we should refuse to do this, hear him ask, Where is the house that you built for me? We should dedicate our houses wholly for God. Panoramas and other worldly things should be kept out of the house of God, as it was certainly not erected for them. Many a wicked announcement has been made in the church. This was not the object for which the house was built. In many places, the church house is a kind of post office, which is not its design. We would, with all our soul, oppose a political meeting in the house of God. We now, dear brethren, dedicate this house wholly to our God. Who delights to receive offerings at the hands of his children?
2: The afterthought this uh, episode is going to be a little different. Usually it's something from the sermon. Uh, or maybe mixed with their life, but when we did the recording for E.K. Love, we're also doing the recording for Oswald Chambers, and both of these men died in their 40s, Uh, E.K. Love at 49 and Oswald Chambers at 43. Neither of these men, you know, lived probably expecting to die in their 40s. That's not a common time to die, and most people, if you ask them when you expect to die— 60s and above is your general answer unless you have like a debilitating disease. You don't expect that you're gonna die before then. Yeah, both of these men would have died in what would have honestly been considered the prime of their life. So I'm in my 20s uh, as, as is Joel and we often, I think, think that uh, this is the beginning. You know, at least early in your years, you'll have plenty of time to make mistakes or to uh, figure things out as you go and uh, and so try things, right? But actually, I mean, for both EK Love and Chambers, they would have already been halfway through living. You don't know how long you have to make a difference and yet even though these guys had shorter lives they made a huge and profound impact because they stayed very busy and they constantly were working on the things God had in front of them and I think for me as I think about these two men and what they did I just want to make sure that I'm living that same way where I don't just kind of go "Oh, I'm in my 20s I got plenty of time to do things for God later no you know what I don't actually have any proof that I will make it past 43 or 49 and this might be the halfway point of my life and if it was how would I want to live different to make sure that the rest of this life was glorifying God with every moment of it
4: Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revive Thoughts. Today's episode was narrated by Erwin Entz. Reverend Dr.
2: Erwin Entz serves
4: as a pastor at Grace D.C. Presbyterian
2: Church and director of the newly formed Grace D.C. Institute for Cross-Cultural Mission. Dr. Entz is a graduate of City College of New York, Reformed Theological Seminary, Covenant Theological Seminary. He has contributed to the book's Heal Us, Emmanuel, A Call for Racial Reconciliation, Representation, and Unity in the Church, and another book, All Are Welcome, Toward a Multi-Everything Church. He has another book coming soon with InterVarsity Press entitled Beautiful Community, Cultivating the Life of Unity and Diversity as God's Image. He and his wife, Kim, have been married 27 years and have four children. If you enjoyed this episode of Revived Thoughts, we hope that you will share it with others, tell others about what we're doing here, and, um the the truth that you are hopefully hearing from these pastors from the past uh, a great way to do that is telling people in person or shooting them a text message or a messenger. Uh, maybe you are right now at the gym or you are currently uh, doing some household chores or whatever it is you're doing, but taking a moment, shooting a message to someone saying, hey, I listened to this sermon or I listened to this show and I think you would enjoy it. Uh, and also make sure to subscribe. We have a lot of people who come in, they listen to an episode, they enjoy it, and then they never come back. And if you subscribe, you can get new episodes every single Thursday. Lastly, we recommend that you follow us on Facebook, instagram twitter where you can hear uh, not just the sermons on a weekly basis but find great quotes find videos all kinds of stuff that we do in between uh, the episodes that we can share with you during that time and it's also great to share us on twitter and instagram and facebook and stuff like that too thank you so much for listening this is troy and joel and this is revive Box.
1: This episode is brought to you by the Device and Virtue podcast. I'm Chris. And I'm Adam. On Device and Virtue, Chris and I argue about the wrongs and rights Christians face with technology in everyday life, from smartphones to evangelism chatbots. To that selfie stick Adam shouldn't have bought. It's nice. Subscribe at deviceandvirtue.com.